Welcome to DIA Today, Democracy in America Today. I'm Matt Parks alongside Dave Corbin. Glad to have you with us to explore the ideas behind today's headlines. My lift, I seize pollution. Those dirty fuels are burning. The Earth's whole climate's churning. Clean energy solution. My ride, I scans the bill. Fossil fuels are cheap. Wind and solar to Drill, baby, drill. Predefined, misaligned, polarized division. Shuttered mind, worse than blind. 2020 vision. Well, we took a week off, Dave, but we're back. Good to be back. I'm just finishing my first uh, six weeks here at Geneva. I think I've had an event every day or every other day. So it's been quite a whirlwind. It's nice though. It's good to meet everyone here or a lot of people here among the Geneva community. Um, hopefully um, not many of them are listening to our show because they may say that the guys seem to have fun when we were at dinner, but boy, he talks about dull topics <laughs> in politics. So uh, what, a, yeah. what a weirdo is this guy? I think he's an egghead. You know? So anyway, we have a special crew of people who listen to this show. That's true. Yeah. It's, it's a select audience we've always said, but yeah, well, that's my, my apologies for the, the gap last week, my, my week with our faculty conference and everything else just kind of ran away from me. So it's good to be back at it. And, you know, in the meantime, uh, the Red Sox have righted the ship enough to be in wild card position, but still tragically now behind the Yankees and, and the and the and the rays so uh it's better than it was two weeks ago but not much um but your patriots are looking quite good at least their most recent preseason game was something of a laugher if you want to take those results with about seven grains of salt perhaps but still better to win than lose i suppose we did live outside of philadelphia for some time when they lost to the eagles in the super bowl so 35 to nothing was was quite a slaughter albeit against the eagles second team defense but it was good. I mean, everything, if you've ever lived near Philadelphia, you know that it's one of the most amazing places to live and everything is good about it other than its sports fans when they're being sports fans. <laughs> so that was a, a good, a good win for the Patriots. Yeah. Mac Jones looks good. I think that uh, he's everything that we'd hope he would be at this point. Just a question of when he'll start and, and I've got skin in the game because we're going to go see the Patriots play the Texans the second week of October. So I'm wondering whether Mac Jones will be starting by then. I, I wish Cam Newton the, the best of luck and hope he starts out well, but I think eventually Mac Jones will be there. That sounds about right to me. I would think five or six weeks in is about when they might be looking to make that switch. It seems like that happens a lot. It'll depend on the record. Probably obviously if they're, if they're three and one, four and one right out of the gate, they're not, they're not switching. On the other hand, if Cam Newton keeps botching, COVID protocols and misses a few more practices or preseason games, they might make the transition even quicker. Yeah. It's one of the greatest organizations in, in the world, the NFL that really, really cares about the health of its players. So kind of having them put into place protocols is, is, uh, is fantastic to say the least. <laughs> got a great track record, don't they? They do. All right. Well, let's use that as our transition to our reading this week as we wrap up book one of the politics, Dave. So what we're going to do is we're going to cover chapters 8 through 13 and chapters 8 through 11 of that grouping of chapters 
deals with economics. Uh, one author said that it's probably the clearest assessment of, of economics uh, that has been provided in the ancient world. So Aristotle says at the beginning of part eight, let's inquire into property. And he asks a basic question. Is the art of getting wealth the same as the art of managing a household? So is the art of getting wealth the same as managing a household? Or is the art of getting wealth instrumental to the household? And if it's instrumental, is it instrumental in that it provides the necessary material means for the household or that it provides necessary instrumental means? Uh, for the household. So Aristotle, as is his way, uh, often kind of states a question and then gives you a preliminary answer. Uh, and he does this at the beginning of part eight. He says, now it is easy to see that the art of household management is not identical with the art of getting wealth. For the one uses the material which the other provides. For the art which uses household stores can be no other than the art of household management. So what he's saying here is that all individuals who manage a household need those material things. They need those instrumental things. But if you make acquisition the end goal, not only the means of household management, but the end goal of household management, you're going to end up in a bad place as a household. If you make the acquisition or aggregation of property and riches your end goal, then you're going to be in a bad place. And, and note here, Matt, that when he's giving us, us this uh, assessment of economic life within the household, he's also pointing forward to an assessment of economic life within the state. So neither the household nor the state should make acquisition an end in itself. It's good to acquire, but acquire with the end of the good of the household in mind or with the good of the state in mind. What do you make of that first assessment of things by Aristotle? Well, it reminds me of the key point that he makes in chapter two of book one in distinguishing living and living well. And you know, this is really a, a fundamental point, I think, for all of Aristotle's analysis of human things, that the purpose of human life is, is not merely material survival, sustenance, you know, just just adding one day after another to the length of one's life, but there's a virtue. There's, there's a purpose, a higher purpose for human achievement. And it's captured in the very simple phrase living well, but I think we all at least have some initial sense of what, what that entails, right? We, we know a, a good life is different from just a life. And I think this is a, a natural extension of that point, right? As we think about the focus of our homes, if our goal is simply uh, to get more stuff, if, if we orient our life around acquisition, then I think we all have some intuitive sense that that's not going to be the best for, for ourselves, for those that we care for within the household. Uh, and yet while we, we get that, and at least in an abstract way, it's still very difficult to follow through on that. And I think we all find ourselves um, at these points of, of tension, right, where uh, material acquisition seems really important as we compare ourselves to our neighbors or as our children compare themselves to their, to their friends. And as we think about, boy, if only I had just this much more, think of the nice things I could have and do and how that would benefit my family, right? You can have, think about it in those terms. So I think it's, it's a good caution for us. 
Yeah, it's interesting here because he'll start with the following. We've heard this expression, well, you need to have food on the table. And that's what Aristotle begins. Every human community needs food on the table, just like all beasts need food on the table. And there are different ways to get food on the table. Uh, either you're a shepherd or you're a husbandman or a brigand or a fisherman or a hunter, or you do agriculture. So all of these things initially produce um, those necessities uh, in life for, for the family. And any brigands in the Corbin family tree, by the way? Um, there was one in the 15th century. Uh, there were two brigands um, in northern France, but we, we never talk about them. It's, it's How about in the Parks family? There's probably a few back there <laughs> if you work your way back. Okay. Yeah, again, it's kind of quiet part of the history that we tell. Um, it's an occupation that's somewhat gone out of favor in the 21st century, but um, who knows? You know, the it's a great word come in back. any case. Yeah, it's a wonderful word. Wonderful word. So um, anyway, thanks for getting me off topic with the discussion <laughs> of the Corbin family brigandry. But um, all to say, those things are natural. To, to want to put food on your table is natural. But where Aristotle think, says that things begin to get unnatural or move in the direction of the artificial is when you're simply trying to acquire money so that you can acquire more money. And here, uh, he really is, is quite critical of a commerce uh, or usury uh, thereafter that, is, uh, that has it as its end the acquisition of wealth. So the, the basic, more natural occupations that provide for the needs of the household are good. You then have commerce or exchange or trade that allows the city to kind of expand and allows the family to kind of expand its wants. But you have to be careful when you move in that direction that your end doesn't simply become the unlimited acquisition of things. So here um, we had mentioned just in preparing for the show that you said, well, Adam Smith would probably have a reply for Aristotle on this front. What, what do you think Adam Smith would say to Aristotle with regard to his assessment of commerce and it being perhaps unnatural? Yeah, we could bring our economist friends on here to, to get their insights into this. But, you know, I think what, what Smith tries to do and what responsible economists ever since have tried to do is, is to make room for uh, the wealth generating effects of exchange and to show how, you know, the way that people use their different gifts and complementary trade actually produces wealth that, that's good for the community as a whole. You know, there's a real publicly spirited element to, to free exchange as individuals find their niche and are able to you know, maximize the value they're able to contribute to the community and then trade for the things that are not able to produce themselves. You know, the, the, the general increase in wealth is, is really quite extraordinary. And we, you, know, we, you see these, these charts uh, the last, say, 200 years, the, the, the way in which free exchange has, has elevated so many people uh, above poverty, you know, bare subsistence. And so that's obviously a good thing. But uh, again, I think there's this, this really important caution here because we think about our politics being so oriented around material things that we've surely lost the uh, ability, I think, to see the danger of the pursuit of wealth as, as the first priority of the household or the state. So if you're tracking with us on this front, uh, do yourself a favor and, and go online if you can and type in the following, 
Thomas Cole, The Course of Empire. Uh, what Cole does there is he has five sketches that really, I think, in, in many ways explain the paradigm that, that we're talking about. The, the first sketch is what he calls the savage state. So it's, it's the world without human activity or very little human activity, very little human trade, exchange, and artifice. When you move to the second portrait, all of a sudden you see what he calls an Arcadia. So this would be maybe the Aristotelian uh, notion of the optimal or, or, or perfect, where man practices agriculture, he has enough to suffice for his needs, and he lives a flourishing existence. But when you move to the third portrait, the consummation of empire, all of a sudden you see the creation of a city that has ships and exchange and buildings and architecture, uh, those things that we would view as beautiful and as a, a good human imprint upon the world. But the question for Aristotle believes is that if you move in that direction of artifice after artifice, exchange after exchange, do you build an empire that eventually, and this is scene four, succumbs to destruction, right? a war, whether civil or foreign, and then finally, the last portrait of desolation. All to say, for the audience and for Cole and for Aristotle, how much art is a good thing? Is art that leads to the consummation of empire something that we should do? Is it a course that we should go down upon? Or ought we to be careful as we expand our ability to make our imprint upon the natural world? And it really kind of states for us that for Aristotle, uh, nature continues to be a very important standard in how we judge our activities as human beings. I mean, I think the difficulty is that that agrarian life, historically, is, is a life that is pleasant, you know, for um, an upper class elite, you know, a 10% perhaps or fewer. It's built upon either indentured servitude or slavery. Um, and of course, you know, you're subject to the elements, right? Think about uh, the danger of a bad crop um, and, you know, the ability to provide against the difficulties of the future. Just think about the story of, of Joseph in Egypt and, and the way that, you know, he, because of God's prophetic word to him, was able to make provision for the people of Egypt and, and his family and beyond. But, but absent that, right, what, how much loss of life would there be? in a period of, of seven lean years, uh, even if there had been seven fat years before that, right? If you're not um, planning well and able to provide for that situation. So, you know, I think that's the difficulty of, of the sort of idealized portrait of agrarian societies. And even, you know, the 19th century American agrarian society that, that Cole is living in, it, it's built upon slave labor, right? In, in substantial measure. And where it's not that, say the Northern free soil situation, again, it's, it's, a, it's a difficult life and people are looking often to escape that um, and to find ways to be more uh, reliably prosperous. So I, I think this is one of those places where we just have to recognize, and of course, Aristotle leads us here, the rule of moderation, right? Uh, there, there's, there's wisdom in the pursuit of, of adequate wealth, both individually and for a community, to provide uh, through challenging times. But there's always the danger of making the acquisition the ultimate purpose and orienting our lives around that. And so because we are acquisitive by nature, greedy by nature, we might say, then we have to constantly be, be warned, right? We can't 
serve both God and mammon. Never mind the danger that exists in that world by brigandry, those brigands that roam exactly. those desolate wildernesses, uh, much like the Corbin crew, late 15th century France. We became dairy farmers, however, in New England and New York. So you're, you're dissing part of my family when you're hitting this agrarian aspect. Yeah, but life was, to, to on your point, life was difficult. Uh, you worked hard, uh, 6 a.m. Uh, to 7 p.m. and went to bed early and, and all the rest. So, but it's, it's, it, it is interesting that, uh, and, and important here that, that we also note that for Aristotle, he, he wants for there to be an opening to something more. He's not simply just suggesting to us that, all right, all we ought to aspire toward as human beings is the agrarian, because he gives a judgment on all occupations at the end of this discussion. He says, those occupations are most truly arts in which there is the least element of chance. So if you're a farmer, there's a lot of element of chance there. They are the meanest in which the body is most deteriorated. So that's farming as well. The most servile in which there is the greatest use of the body and the most illiberal in which there is the least need of excellence. So there will be a need for kind of a civilizational advance. But I think what he's suggesting to us is that when we have that civilizational advance, it can't simply be acquisitive in nature. Yeah, I think we want to be clear that you know, it's, it's a good thing for human beings to work. Uh, our, our church is doing a men's study, and, and the book that we're doing is called The Masculine Mandate, and it talks about the, the central role of, of work in God's calling for men and you know, all, all varieties of work, uh, honorable work, honest work, that can be a, a good thing. Um, so I think when you're talking about kind of a individual orientation, right, there's, there's a need to be laboring. Uh, this is this is the world we live in. It's a challenging world, and if we're not working, uh, we're in danger of not being able to provide for ourselves and for our families. But just because we have that necessity, again, just tempts us to get this out of balance. And I think Aristotle is very helpful in always pushing us toward uh, the higher realization of of our moral and intellectual character as human beings, and to to strive toward the more excellent use of the gifts that we've been given by God. You just solved a great mystery for me, Matt. When we got on the podcast, I was wondering why there was an ax behind you and you were wearing a plaid shirt. So now it's all, <laughs> it's all coming together for me. Okay. It's the men's Bible study. Um, we're going to have a manly Matt Parks throughout uh, this season for the rest of the season. I like it. Good. Yeah, Good. that's right. Well, that, that, and I'm hoping for a Lamar Alexander comeback. So, all right. All good. Well, to, to finish up the conversation, he, he, uh, he moves in uh, parts 12 and 13 to really, I think, kind of where he's, what he's getting at here in this whole discussion of, of economics and where he's getting at this whole discussion of um, the art of managing a household. And as we're going to say later, the art of managing a state. What, what he's interested in is as we move forward as human beings, as we live as human beings, how do we practice life in a, in a virtuous way? Well, that's the question, right? Can, can we do our work or our occupations uh, virtuously? And, and I think that one of the places where Aristotle differs from his teacher, Plato, is in how he incorporates work uh, into his assessment of the city. Work is natural. You know, work is part of, of what, what we have to do as human beings in order to put food on the table. 
And work can be good. It can it can allow us to have a good sensibility about things. There's a there's a virtue, as you were saying earlier, to being a good mechanic or or to being a good brigand, perhaps. I don't know. But there's there, there's virtue um, that that's particular to each of the jobs that we do. And and here in parts twelve and thirteen, he's going to talk about there's a virtue to being a good ruler, and there's a virtue to being well ruled. There's a virtue to being a good husband and a virtue to being a good wife, virtue to being a good parent and virtue to being a good child, that, that all of these roles that we play require, if we were to do them well, a certain virtue. And this is a very, very different portrait of virtue or the right ordering of a society than what you see in Plato's Republic. Plato's Republic the definition of virtue comes from Socrates' statement as to what justice is. He says, one man, one art. Now, for every human being, there's a thing that he ought to be doing. The majority of people, 99%, I used to say to uh, classes, they're going to produce and consume. That's what they do. So let them produce and consume with temperance. The middle group, the guardians, they defend so that all the people can produce and consume and then in the best city, the philosopher king's rule. And here, I think Aristotle is saying there's much more complexity to the makeup of a city. Uh, it requires perhaps tens of thousands of different roles, and each of those roles require a certain virtue. So it's not a simplified philosopher king's rule, guardians defend, and everyone else produces and consumes, which is really kind of a critique of that production and consumption. It's a notion that we each have a virtuous part to play if we're going to live in a flourishing household and or a flourishing state. And I think that's a good reminder. You know, and we've seen this in other studies where we looked at the, the Federalist or other places that uh, there needs to be a certain quality of virtue in leaders, but also in citizens. And you know, the, some of the controversy comes in when you think about, well, does the government have a role in cultivating that virtue? And it at least does in, in exemplifying it, right? And in, in, in showing a model of that virtue on the part of political leaders. But it's just evident from our experiences, even with recent political events, that, that a people that is unwilling to restrain itself, that's unwilling to you know, take on the work that comes along with self-government uh, is not going to be able to play the part it needs to, uh, to, be, to be citizens, you know, and, and of course, this is, this is the highest form of, of being ruled is to be a citizen, to be a part of the community. And as Aristotle will talk about later, sharing in ruling and being ruled, because the reality is the American citizen is not just ruled. Uh, the American citizen shares in rule, shares in rule in casting votes, shares in rule in other forms of political participation. We can think about uh, often forgotten and neglected, but jury duty as an important part of, of sharing in rule. And obviously all the formal and informal ways we can get involved, especially in local governments and debates and those sorts of things. So this is an interesting aspect of, of a democratic society that, you know, it's not just about a ruling class that, that governs and has to achieve certain qualities of virtue to do that well, but that each of us has to be prepared not only to be ruled, but also to rule in our turn and in, in different phases of life, right? We may be ruling and other areas be 
being ruled. And so there's a, a fullness of virtue, uh, situational, as you're saying, but a fullness of virtue that we have to be able to display depending on the circumstances in our situation. Yeah, and that departs greatly from the two main thrusts in American life at the 21st century. That one segment of our citizenry that says, it's about my rights. Give me liberty or give me death without recognizing the need for public and private virtue. Or that other group that says, it's really a matter of who gets what, when, and how. And I want my part without thinking once again about public and private virtues. So this emphasis on the need for virtuous rulers, but a virtuous citizenry is, I think, central to the Aristotelian uh, understanding of politics, uh, one that I think, as you mentioned earlier, was understood by the founding and needs to be understood again if American society is to flourish in the in the 21st century. Great, yeah. great discussion. So then that's really where we go for for next week. Uh, he's going to take this discussion of the household, this kind of micro-level discussion of what happens in household management and acquisition. And he's going to move on to theories of what a perfect state or a perfect political community look like. And he calls this a new beginning. So uh, on our show next week, we will have a new beginning and a new discussion on that front. Sounds great. So we're going to wrap up the show with Tocqueville's crystal ball. And as we started our last episode, working our way through the NFL divisions and trying to make some projections and predictions. Uh, This week, we are looking at the AFC and NFC South. So just to remind you, of course, NFC South includes the Super Bowl champion Tampa Bay Bucks, who were second in their division last year to the Saints, but obviously made their way through the playoffs unscathed uh, all the way to victory in Super Bowl 55. Uh, AFC South last year was won by the Tennessee Titans. So let's turn our attention to this year. Dave, once again, we've got to get used to this 17 game schedule. And we'll start with the AFC South. How do you see that breaking down? I think the Titans are by far the most complete team in that division. I think the problem for the Titans is though, even though they're a very good team, they'll have a really tough schedule. We talked about the NFC West uh, last week uh, and all those great teams in the NFC West. They have to play all of those teams. And they also have to play the AFC East, which I think is going to be a lot stronger this year. The Bills are great. The Dolphins are going to be very good. So let's, and then I think the Patriots are going to be better. So the Titans will have to play a rough schedule. I see them going uh, 12 and five, which will be a solid record. We'll get them probably a home playoff game at the beginning of the, uh, of the postseason. Good team. And then from there, I, I'm, I'm not expecting much of the Colts. Uh, I think that uh, their quarterback situation is still a little bit up in the air. Um, like you, I probably think that, you know, Wentz could get injured at any time, just given how he plays. And he just seems to have a knack for, being injured. And then at the bottom of that division, take your pick uh, Jaguars, Texans. I, I think they'll both have two or three wins and, and probably compete with one another to have the number one pick in, in next year's draft. Yeah. So, I mean, overall, I agree with you. I, I think Titans might do a little bit better than 12 and five. I've got them down at 13 and four, uh, but Colts, I think, yeah, they're about a 500 team, nine, eight, maybe eight, nine. Uh, Wentz will not play all 17 games. You know, Frank Reich seems like a great head coach. And so I think there's reasons for optimism there. Uh, Jonathan Taylor, you know, year two could take a nice step forward. I think he's really, really talented back. So they've got some pieces, but it just doesn't seem like it's all coming together. And if they could solve the quarterback problem, kind of like Denver, you could see them being a real uh, contender uh, moving ahead. Yeah, Jaguars, you know, Trevor Lawrence 
no indication that he's going to be a superstar day one. Uh, very few quarterbacks are. I think he'll be great in the long run, but there's going to be some growing pains. You know, Travis Etienne is now out for the year. James Robinson was good last year, but you know, not not great. So I think there's going to be some improvement there. You know, is Urban Meyer going to be a great NFL coach? Maybe, but that move from the college ranks to the NFL is not always smooth. Even Nick Saban had a challenge there. And, you know, Urban Meyer is probably the closest thing to the uh, Nick Saban that you have on the, on the college scene over the last 20 years. So I think it's fair to ask whether he will be a great NFL coach. So all that to me suggests, you know, four and 13 incremental step forward, but, but not there yet. Texans I'm afraid are potentially a disaster. Uh, I don't think Sean Watson's going to play this year. Uh, the offense is weak. Is this your new Texas team, Dave? Have you decided you're you're not going to be a Cowboys bandwagon here? I could never root for the Cowboys. Uh, I just <laughs> that was just. I'll, I'll try with the Texans. Um, we'll, we'll see. Yeah. Mean, the first thing they need to do for me is to lose to the Patriots when I when I go there for my birthday celebration. Right. But, fair uh, enough. But thereafter, yeah, I mean, I, I always like to root for at least one team in a local area. And I haven't quite chosen a, a Texas football team uh, to the uh, anger of some of the people I've met around here who want me to go A&M or, or, um, or for the horns. But we'll, we'll see. Yeah, I, I think the Texans uh, long term could be in, in pretty good shape. Can we get the Chargers to move to San Antonio? That would be great. I think if we can get any team to move to San Antonio, that would be wonderful. I, I think we ought to have a sports franchise in, in each of the four sports. Uh, that Austin-San Antonio corridor is just like begging for three more um, teams. Yeah, a lot, lot of people. Seems like you could support that. All right, let's turn our attention now to the NFC South. So, again, we've got the Bucks and Saints probably near the top of that division, Panthers and Falcons as well. How do you see it shaking out? Well, I think it was remarkable that Brady played, as we just heard I mean, last month, with an injury last year. And uh, my, my guess is that his age is going to show. Um, for those of you who are Patriots fans, 2008, uh, he gets hit by Bernard Pollard from the Chiefs. He's down for the season. And all it takes is kind of one offensive line breakdown. And I think the Bucs, uh, without a quarterback, are a very different team. They probably still win the division. So I'm, I'm going to guess that happens at some point. That's my prophecy the a Brady injury this year maybe a 10 and 7 you know, season uh, they get into the playoffs but uh, they're they really don't, don't do much damage thereafter I think they're thereafter I, I really love Sean Payton as a coach I don't think he has as strong of a team as he's had in the past although he could surprise and, and they could go 12 and 5 but I, I think they end up right around the 10 and 7 mark I think the Panthers do better I think Matt rules are a good coach I think uh, Sam Darnold uh former Jets quarterback uh, in that system and with good receivers does well. So they're up closer to the Bucks and Saints than people expect. I'd put them somewhere over 500. Uh, and then I think at, at the bottom of the division, I'd have the Falcons and they just don't have a division. They have great offensive weapons. Matt Ryan's a great quarterback, but at the end of the day, no defense, no wins. Okay. Yeah. I'm a little more optimistic. Um, Brady, I think he's got one more year. Of course you're right. Any play, an injury can happen. He's probably more injury prone at his age than other players, but I think the division overall is weaker. So I'm going to say 14 and three for the bucks. I think they have one more big year, one more shot at, at winning it all saints. I've got a 10 and seven agree. Sean Payton's great coach, but Taysom Hill and Jameis Winston are definitely not 
Drew Brees at his best, maybe Drew Brees last year. Uh, the Michael Thomas drama, there just seems to be enough going on there that yeah, 10 and 7, maybe even 9 and 8 wouldn't surprise me. I, I'm not convinced about Sam Darnold, so I'm going to say the Panthers end up 5 and 12. You never know, but you, know, you escape from Adam Gase. There's a, a pretty good track record of people improving, like Ryan Tannenhill uh, for the Titans. So it's very well possible that that there's more to Darnold than we've seen in New York, but my guess is not enough. And the Falcons, yeah, I think about 5-12 and 12 also. You know, Matt Ryan just keeps on doing his thing. Calvin Ridley, great receiver. I'm expecting Kyle Pitts to be excellent, at least by the second half of the year as he gets acclimated to the NFL. He just seems like an incredible athlete and extremely skilled tight end. But like you said, no defense. And so I think it's still going to be a tough year down there in Atlanta. All right, that's going to wrap it up for this week's show. And thank you, as always, for listening. We encourage you to like the podcast, subscribe to the podcast, review the podcast on your favorite podcast platforms. And we'll look forward to talking to you again next week. Twitter.